I'm going to invite you to turn in the Bible, turn in your Bibles to the, uh, our text scripture for the series that we're teaching on the glory of God, the Old Testament book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. Haggai the prophet is speaking at the time that the second temple is being constructed or we might say reconstructed. The first temple was Solomon's temple and that's when uh, Solomon was the king of Israel and, and uh, Israel was following God. Israel rebelled against God, disobeyed God and as a result were overcome by enemies and then many years later the, uh, the second temple was restored or rebuilt so that Israel could come back into its own land and uh, again try as best they could or would uh, to obey God. So at the time that Haggai is speaking these things, the second temple is being reconstructed. Now, we know from some things that, uh, that history reveals to us, not only uh, Bible history, but also what, uh, what we know from natural history, that, uh, that some of the things that are spoken of here uh, have a spiritual meaning rather than a natural meaning. I'll, I'll show you what I mean as we go. Uh, Haggai chapter 2 and verse 7, God says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Now, this has to do with end-time events, and I'll show you why. The desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, if we just stopped right there and looked at the natural context of this, when it's spoken, the second temple is being rebuilt, as I said, we would assume that this means that the second temple is going to have the same glory as the first temple. The Bible, however, tells us that when the second temple was finished, that there were people that were of an, uh, an older age that were alive when the first temple was dedicated, or at least they saw the first temple at the time that it was still uh, in, in operation, and they wept because the second temple had nothing of the same glory as the first temple. It was nothing in comparison to it. So it can't be talking about the physical building. It can't be talking about the natural uh, temple or the natural house of God, the sanctuary of Israel. Instead, it's talking about the church, because God's always how of the house that God always intended to live in was you. He says so very specifically. He's not building buildings to live in. His ultimate plan was to dwell in man. So that's what this is speaking of. The, the glory of the second house shall be greater than of the former. In other words, it's saying the glory of the church will be greater than Solomon's temple. Now we looked at what Solomon's temple was like when they dedicated it. They all lifted up their voice to God with one accord and began to sing the praise for the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. And the Bible says the cloud, the glory cloud of God filled the temple so that the priest couldn't stand to minister. That seems pretty good to me. How about you? That was the glory of the first temple. That was the glory or the manifested presence of God in the temple when it was first, Solomon's temple, when it was first dedicated. There are three temples. Solomon's temple, the second temple, which people wept over and said, this is nothing in comparison to Solomon's temple. And then the third temple was Herod's temple and it had nothing to do with God. It was a, a structure that was created for a political reason, for the, for the glory of Herod, the builder. Jesus scoffed at Herod's temple. Everybody's looking around. The disciples are looking around. And they said, wow, have you ever seen anything so pretty as this? And Jesus scoffed at it and said, there's coming a day where there's not one stone going to be left on another in this place. In other words, this is nothing in the sight of God. So the three temples of Israel cannot be what he's talking about relative to the latter house glory. Well, what's he talking about then? He's talking about the church. Well, if he's talking about the church, then what is he speaking in regard to? Notice again in verse 7, he says... And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Folks, the Bible says that the earth, all nations in other words, is groaning, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. 
In other words, the earth, which is under the curse that came upon uh, not only man, but came upon the earth because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, the earth is waiting and groaning and travailing in labor, one translation says, trying to get out from under that curse because that's not the way God made it. That's not the way God intended it. It's not what God uh, meant for it to be. And so the earth is groaning and travailing trying to get out from under that curse. That's what this is talking about. The desire of all nations shall come. What causes the desire of all nations to be manifest? What causes the earth to get out from under the curse? Two things, two significant events. The earth is going to be remade at the end of the tribulation period, but before that comes the rapture. So he's got to be talking about end time events. Got to be talking about end time events. So he says, I will shake all nations. Anybody see any of that going on nowadays? Show me a nation that's not being shaken some way or another, politically, militarily, economically, some way or another. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. In other words, he's saying it's getting close. We need to be aware that the time is coming short. And the desire of all nations shall come. And here's another thing that's related to or associated with this end time event. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now whatever you want to think about that, God connects these things together. I know some people have a religious attitude about, about resources. And, you know, well, God doesn't want us to have money. God put silver and gold together with glory related to the last days. How can you argue that? Now, we might speculate about what that means, and some people might go off the deep end thinking, well, it means this or it means that or it means something else. God put them, put them together. For whatever purpose, God put them together. That tells me there has to be resources and provisions of resources for the church for the last days. I think it goes further than that, but I'm just going to stop there. Because I don't see how anybody can argue that. For what other reason would God put them together in these verses? He didn't have to, you know. So he says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house. By the way, notice he didn't say the silver is in my possession. He didn't say the gold is in my control. He said it's mine. In other words, he's the creator of it. Satan is the god of this world. He's obviously dominating the world's economic system. That's why things are going so well. But it still belongs to him. In other words, he knows where it is. He's not going to have any problem letting us know where it is or how to get it. Okay. Silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory. Everybody say glory. Glory. Verse 9. The glory of this latter house, he's talking about the church, shall be greater than of the former. He's talking about Solomon's temple. There's going to be greater glory for the church than the glory cloud that filled the temple and so that the priests weren't able to stand or to minister to the people, weren't able to stand and minister to the people. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place, in the church, will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, folks, if you think about peace in relation to end-time events, that's pretty significant. That means when the rest of the world is being shaken, you don't have to be. 
That means when the rest of the world is in turmoil and we're turning upside down because of this happening or that happening or this threat of that happening, you don't have to be moved by that. Now, we've looked at a lot of Old Testament scriptures uh, about what the glory is and how the glory manifests. We see over and over again, the Bible talks about it being a cloud like in Solomon's temple. Other times it speaks of it being smoke. Other times it speaks of it being a bright light or glistening. It speaks of uh, a rainbow in one place. It, uh, there, there are many different uh, uh, words that are used and descriptions that are used throughout the Old Testament to speak of the, the glory of God as it manifests. The glory of God is just simply the manifest presence of God. How it appears in many cases is described to us in, in the Scripture. Today I want to start going in a different direction with this series. And that is, uh, rather than look at how the glory cloud, if you'll allow me to use that term, uh, I hope you understand what I mean when I use that term, just like in Solomon's temple. How that the glory cloud, rather than just how the glory cloud manifests itself in, in different situations, in congregations or services or whatever, I want to talk about what the glory of God really is and what God's original plan for it was. In order to do that, I'm going to ask you to turn back with me to Genesis. I believe it's really important for you to understand the beginning. When God begins to speak to his people and he gives Moses the, the Ten Commandments and, and begins to talk to him, he gives him the whole of the law. The first five books of the Bible is what, what we know of as the law. The prophets are also considered the, the word of God, certainly, as God uh, uh, spoke to, uh, to others about things to come and, and such. But I think it's really important for us to understand God's beginning or what the Bible says about the beginning because if you don't understand the beginning, you'll never understand what God's plan for man was. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much controversy in, in the world about how the earth began. Because if, if the devil can keep you confused about that, he can keep you from knowing what God's plan is. And if he can keep you from knowing what God's plan for man is, he can keep you from walking in the reality of what Jesus purchased for you on the cross. The book of Genesis is hugely important. Hugely important. So it says, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, let's go back to the beginnings. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, folks, stop right there. We usually think of the creation as being the rest of, of chapter 1. But it says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Period. It's created. It's done. Now verse 2 tells us something else. Verse 2 is not related to verse 1. None of the rest of chapter 1 is related to verse 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning God created heaven and the earth. Period. It's created. Heaven's created. Earth's created. Verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void. The earth was without form and void. Now, the word was is very important because we need to understand something about meanings here, Hebrew meanings. The word was means to exist, to be or become to, or to come to pass. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the world and the earth existed. Well, that's not the proper meaning here, but it's because it's going to describe something about the earth. So it says, and the earth became, or the world came to pass. Something about this that he's going to describe is going to tell us about what came to pass. Well, what came to pass? This is the same word that's used throughout the rest of chapter 1, where God said, let the earth bring forth seed, and it was so. In other words, and it came to pass. And, the, and he said, let the earth bring forth the, the beasts of the field and, and the cattle and so forth. And it came to pass, or and it was so. That's the same word that's translated was in verse 2. 
Now, why they translated one thing in verse 2 and another thing in verse 7 and verse 12 and other places in chapter 1 is beyond me. Why didn't they translate it with the same meaning, with the same understanding? I don't know. But it's caused a lot of people some misunderstanding because they think from just a simple casual reading that God created the heaven and the earth without form and void. The problem with that is, and we'll, well, I'll tell you what, hold your finger here. Go ahead and look with me over to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. I'm not sure how far I'll get with this this morning. I'm, I am conscious of the time, and I know we've got the Newcomers Fellowship and other stuff, so uh, we'll just go as far as we can this morning, and then we'll hook on with it next, next uh, week when we come back together. I don't have any idea if I've got... Uh, well, I'm pretty sure I don't have time to finish this. I may finish this next year. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 45. Notice what verse 18 says. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens. Here's God speaking about what happened. Okay? Do you understand that? Isaiah is saying, here's what God said. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, the, the, the Bible was just written by men and so forth. Well, that's true. It was written by men inspired by the Holy Ghost. And when the man inspired by the Holy Ghost says, thus saith the Lord, or here's what God said, you have one of two options. You can either believe that this is what God said, or you can throw the thing out entirely. You do not have the right to pick and choose what part of the Bible you believe to be true. This is not a buffet. Pick the parts you like and leave the other parts alone, which is the way too many Christians seem to live. It's either all true or it's all a lie. Because it all claims to be inspired by the Holy Ghost. If man is left to decide what part is inspired by God and what part's not inspired by God, then how do you know you're picking right? How can you have any confidence in the part that says, where, that says, where God says, here's how you become saved? How can you have any confidence in anything if you don't believe it all to be true or all to be a lie? Now, you pick whichever one you want. God said, here's the way it was. We're pretty strong around here on this is the Word of God. If you haven't figured it out, that's a pretty serious issue for us. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He established it. He has established it. In other words, here's how he created it. He's going to describe something about his creation of the earth. He created it not in vain. He created it not in vain. This is the same Hebrew word that's used over in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 where it says it was without form and void. Without form is the same word translated vain here. I'll describe what those words mean in a minute. I'll define them from the Hebrew. He created it not in vain. In other words, he didn't create it without form and void. Well, if he created the heavens and the earth but he didn't create it without form and void, then something had to happen to cause it to be without form and void. That seems pretty simple, doesn't it? I know it's controversial to a lot of people, but it seems very apparent to me. I'm just simple enough to believe the Bible. And if you stick with what the Bible says, you can get some answers to some things that everybody else agonizes over. So it says he created it not without, in vain. In other words, he created it not without form. Well, how did he create it then? He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is none else. 
He didn't create it without form and void. In other words, he created it to be inhabited. Well, in chapter 1 and verse 2, it's not yet inhabited. Yet, verse 1 says he created it. How do you create something without form and void? I mean, outside the possible exception of some modern art, um, how can you create anything without form and void? I mean, that'd be like throwing a, a lump of a, a big pile of mud down and say, there's my creation. Now, this phrase, without form and void, is not, a, uh, is not an archaic term. It's a common term in Hebrew. Let me define the words. Without form, as I said, is the same word in Isaiah 45, verse 18, that's translated vain. There are several different meanings of this word, but the ones that seem to be most appropriate for this uh, application would be chaos or chaotic and waste or wasteland. So without form means that it was chaos and it was a waste. Where it says without form and void, the word void means empty or emptiness. So it says, God's saying, I didn't create it a wasteland. I didn't create it empty. Well, something caused it to be that way. Now, the Hebrew phrase, the, without form, is the word tohu. The word void is the Hebrew word bohu. So, and please forgive the, the slang of my voice or the... the accent of my voice because I know I'm butchering Hebrew just like I butcher English but literally in Hebrew the phrase is tohu vabohu or something like that (laughs) now as I said it's not an archaic term it's a common day it has common day application a common day use you ask any Hebrew mother what tohu vabohu means and they'll say it's like my son's room I'm serious. I'm not making a joke. I'm serious. The room wasn't created in chaos. It wasn't created a wasteland. It wasn't created empty of any order. But after teenagers live in it for a while, sometimes that's the way it turns out. And so what do they scream? They come down the hall and scream, Tohu vabohu, clean it up. That's what the Bible is telling us happened to God's creation. Now hold your finger here. We're going to come back again. But turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah apparently is given by God the opportunity to look back at what things were like before what we know of as the creation. Now when I say before the, the creation, I mean before... Um, God begins to move in the latter part of uh, the first book of Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis. He gets a chance to look back at what the world was like in Genesis 1-2. And he's speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And so here's what it says. Jeremiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Jeremiah says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. Same Hebrew phrase. It was tovu, tohu vabohu. When could he be seeing it then? He's got to be seeing it in some time prior to man's appearance on the earth because he winds up saying there was no man. 
or sometime in the future. It can't be while man is here. So at what point in time is he seeing the earth? It's either got to be before Adam or sometime way down in the future, and there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that that's our future. So you decide for yourself. But here's what Jeremiah said that he saw in the earth. He said, And I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. And the heavens mean the heavens were without form and void too. And they had no light. Now what does that mean? That means there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no stars. It's blackness. He goes further and says, I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled. The word tremble is, is the same word we'd use for earthquake. They quaked. So there were mountains here. So without form and void doesn't mean absent mountains. Without form and void doesn't mean a lump of mud somewhere. There was a geographical terrain of some type if there were mountains, right? Now he's telling us what without form and void means. There were mountains and they quaked, which means there were earthquakes. Without form and void does not mean there, was no, there were no physical laws in operation. Earthquakes are the result of the laws of physics. Geological laws, geological actions and different things that take place, that's what caused earthquakes. Now they may have spiritual sources sometimes, but we know they're always a natural result. You can always explain, science can always explain why did this earthquake take place. Well, because some plate you know, moved on top of another one under sea or something like that. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that, but you know what I'm trying to say. So there were mountains and there were earthquakes. And then he goes further and he says, and all the hills, I guess a hill is a small mountain, moves lightly. The word move lightly means crumbled. So apparently without form and void, the chaos or the wasteland has something to do with the earth in some kind of upheaval state or some kind of state of upheaval would be a better way to say it. Are you with me so far? Now, folks, I'm not trying to be a scientist here. I'm just believing what the Bible says. And here's what the Bible says it was. He goes further and says in verse 25, I beheld and lo, there was no man. So without form and void means there was no inhabitant, at least no human inhabitant. And it says, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. Now, here we, we can make an assumption, but I don't know that we can be right in our assumption. Is he saying all the birds of the heaven fled, meaning there were birds, but now they're gone away? Or is he just looking at it and saying in a place where there should be birds because of what I'm used to in the, the generation of man, there wasn't anything? I don't have an answer for that. I don't think there is an answer for that. He just says there's no birds in the heavens. Verse 26, and I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness. I think in the same way regarding the birds, we have to conclude that he's either saying it was fruitful before, but then it became a wilderness, or it's a wilderness where there should be and where I'm accustomed to fruitfulness. Which way? I don't know. I, I, I I I have a pretty good idea, but you can't prove it. It's speculation. Either way you come up, you have to make an assumption that you can't prove for sure. Now, what in the world would cause the earth to be in this kind of condition? What would cause the earth to be a wasteland? What would cause the earth to be without, uh, you know, in this state of upheaval, this chaos, where there is no presence of man? Now, he's not saying there was no presence of man. He's not saying, I looked over into this county and there was nobody there. He's saying there was nobody on the earth. He said, I beheld the earth. There was nobody on any of it. What would cause the earth to be in that kind of condition? Notice he goes further in verse 26. He said, um, 
Oh, I got ahead of myself. Let's keep, let's keep reading. Lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down. He does not say there weren't cities. He says there were cities and they were broken down. So without form and void means there were cities that were desolate. There were cities that were destroyed. That's what he's telling us. He's describing by the Holy Ghost, he's describing what without form and void is. He said there were cities, but uninhabited. There were earthquakes. The earth was in a state of chaos and upheaval. And the cities were broken down, which has to mean there were cities there. Cities existed in one ti- at one time in some different state than the broken down state that they were now in. I cannot read your face for anything. I'm not trying to belabor this. I just want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. I, you don't have to agree with what I'm saying. I don't care. Listen, my job is to tell you the truth. It's up to you from there. Really, my hands are clean. Got a lot of people that want to argue me, with me about this. No point in arguing with me. You're wasting your time. If you want to say I don't believe it, okay, that's fine. I'm just telling you the truth. And here's what the Bible says is the truth. I'm not telling you the truth because here's what I think. I'm telling you what the Bible says. All the cities were broken down. So without form and void means there were broken down cities. Okay. Now what would cause this kind of condition? What would cause this without form and void condition? And please understand, it's the same without form and void that Genesis 1-2 is talking about. What would cause this without form and void condition? Notice the last part of verse 26. The cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. Something made God mad. Genesis 1-2 is a result not of nothing being there, but of God having gotten really mad at something that went on before. That's what the Bible says. Verse 27. For thus hath the Lord said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. Now, full end, what is he talking about? A full end. A full end of the earth. So apparently, something happened and made God so mad that it destroyed everything. It broke out all the cities down. It caused the earthquakes to, to, uh, to, to cause mountains to crumble and, and hills to, to be laid flat. All kinds of chaotic things happened at the fierce anger of the Lord because God said the whole earth shall be desolate, yet that's not going to be the end of the earth. Back to Genesis 1-2. Now we have some understanding from the Bible, not from... Man's idea, your idea, my idea, or anybody else's, but we have some understanding of the Bible, from the Bible what it means, and God created the heaven and the earth, period. There was something there, verse 2, and the earth was or became without form and void. Why? Because God got really mad and said the whole place will be desolate, yet that's not the end. Now the rest of Genesis chapter 1 is going to tell us how the end was reversed or the, the desolation was reversed because God hadn't made an end. Genesis 1, verse 2. And the earth was or became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, here is the most important part of the story of Genesis. 
the next phrase of chapter of verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord moved upon the waters. What I want you to understand is the earth was broken down because of the presence of God, because of His anger. What that means is God took His hand off the earth. But in order to reverse things, now the Spirit of God begins to move upon the waters. Well, it had to be waters then. Without forming a void, doesn't mean there weren't waters. And so then God looks upon the earth and he says, let there be light. And there was light. I want you to notice he doesn't make the sun, the moon, and the stars until many verses later, several verses later. Second day. How is there light without a sun and a moon? Because the light that came back on the earth was the presence of God. Which tells me the reason that it was darkness, it was blackness, and it was desolation in the without form and void state was because the presence of God was lifted off of the earth. And that's the condition that Jeremiah is looking into in chapter 4. Can you see that? Now, you know the rest of the story of creation. Day one, he makes this. Day one, he makes this. Day two, he makes something else. Day three, day four, day five, day six. At the end of day, day six, he looks at it and he said, it's very good. He created man. Now, the significant part of creating man was on day six. Everything else was made in preparation for man. Folks, please understand this is how God works. He makes everything else to provide for the man that he's planned. You may be looking at your life or your situation or circumstances in your life and think, oh my goodness, is God not made provision for me? Is there no way God's going to help me? He's already made provision for you before you ever got there. And most times it's not a matter of finding the provision or, or, or getting God to make provision. It's a matter of discovering the provision that He's made. God always makes a way of escape. The, the issue is, the key is, find the way. Because your way of escape may not be my way of escape. I'm talking from a natural standpoint. You know, if you're in, uh, in financial hardship, if you're looking for God to meet your needs, your way of escape or financial provision may not be the same way as me. Similarly, we're both going to look to Jesus as being our source, but your way of that source providing may be a different way than for me. So the key is always finding the way. If you're praying, oh, God, help me, you're wasting time. You need to be praying, Lord, show me the way. He's already helped you. He sent you Jesus. The Bible says very specifically, if God has already given you Jesus, which is the best that he's got, how is he going to withhold any other good thing from you? So quit praying for God to do something and start praying, God, show me the way. That's the key. It's always the key because there's always a way. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image. Now, why is God talking our? Because the Bible says God is made up of three persons. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so here's God speaking on behalf of all three who are present at creation. God said, let us make man in our image. Now, folks... The three parts of the Godhead, I know it's a hard thing to understand. There are three personalities to the Godhead. They all have distinct and specific purposes. God the Father is the planner. Jesus the Son is the one that, that, uh, that reveals the plan to us. He's the Word. He was the Word made flesh. It's a revelation of God. 
And the Holy Spirit is always the agent or the power by which that plan is carried out. So here's God the planner saying, let us make man in our image. In our image. And let them, mankind, male and female, let them have dominion. The word dominion, it means rule. It means authority. Let man have authority over all the works of our hands. Now, you need to understand, the Bible tells us some things, some, some significant things that might be, the, well, for me they are, but I want to say it in a, in, a, in a way for people to be able to consider it and decide for themselves. The Bible tells us about an event that could have caused Genesis, uh, the, the earth being without form and void that's described in Genesis 1-2. The Bible tells us that, uh, that Satan took a third of the angels and fought against God and God cast him out of heaven into the earth. Now that cataclysmic event could have very well been the thing that caused the earth to be without form and void. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, after sending his disciples out in his name to go before him, they came back and they said, Master, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Jesus said in Luke 10 18, he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Well, when did Satan fall as lightning from heaven? Not when they started using his name. Satan fell from lightning as heaven before Genesis 1-2. Before Genesis 1-2. Now, in order for you to understand God's plan for man, you've got to understand where Satan was and what his position was. So turn with me over to Ezekiel chapter 28. I hope I'm not boring you with some of this. Many times I feel like these are things that people already know, they, they've, that we've talked about them before, and so people are aware of them, and so I'm inclined to go quickly through this and maybe leave some of it undone. I'm impressed this morning to do otherwise. So maybe you're the one here that hadn't heard this. I don't know. Or maybe this is the thousandth and first time that you've heard it, and it's now going to sink in. I don't know. Either way is good with me. Ezekiel chapter 28, notice in verse 11, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Here's Ezekiel saying again, here's what God said. Now, what did God say? Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Now, the first part of the chapter is where he prophesies by the Spirit of the Lord in verse 2 to the prince of Tyrus. We know the prince of Tyrus was what we would call the literal king, the earthly king. But it's telling us, it's showing us by calling the earthly king the prince and saying that there's another being, the, the king. It's showing us that there's a spiritual force that's influencing the earthly king. And he's really the one in charge. That's who Ezekiel now is commanded by the Lord to prophesy against. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, folks, there was no natural man other than Adam that was in the Eden, the garden of God. And Adam's been dead for hundreds of years by the time this is spoken. So he can't be talking about a natural man. Well, then who's he talking about? Let's keep reading. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. This guy was pretty well decked out. Not only that, but verse 12 tells us that he was the fullness of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That would indicate he's the best of the best, wouldn't it? 
Back to verse 13. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes. He's talking about his voice. So apparently this being had something, his, his position had something to do with his voice. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Now that tells us something. This is a created being. Well, we know God's the creator, so he's got to be created by God. Verse 14, thou art the anointed cherub that covers. Boy, this is really getting descriptive of something or someone. Thou art the anointed cherub that covers. In other words, this is another way of saying you were the one that was in charge. You were the one that was given authority. You were the one that was given power or place or position by God to be in charge. Now, why was that? Well, here's the Holy Spirit saying by or saying on behalf of God, because I set you so. It's telling us that this being was in the Garden of Eden, decked out with all this stuff, in this position, full of wisdom, full of perfect in beauty, with, this, uh, with a voice and with an assignment and power or authority to be in charge. Well, in charge of what? Well, the only thing he's recognized or the only thing he's referred to as far as boundaries or territory was Eden. Now, does that mean just the Garden of Eden or does that represent the earth? Well, I don't know. We're going to have to keep reading. Thou art the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. That means that this being, at least at one time, walked up and down the mountain with God. Again, it's speaking of some high-ranking position to be able to be with God. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, there are many different ideas and speculations about what the stones of fire are, but it would certainly indicate that he's a being that has authority over or is unaffected by the things of the earth or the elements of the earth. Verse 15, Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created. Again, it says he was created. Thou was perfect in thy ways in the day that thou was created until iniquity was found in thee. Until iniquity was found in thee. Now the Bible says very specifically that God did not create the iniquity in this being. I think you figured out this has got to be Satan. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence. Merchandise has to do with commerce. So whatever he's in charge of, whatever territory he has, which we're going to find out is the earth... There was a commerce. There was a system of commerce, buying and selling. Very similar, very simple, very well, similar in some respect to what we would know of today. Well, that would go along with what we saw in Jeremiah, that the cities were broken down. It sounds like there was something similar to what we experience today taking place. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee. Now, this is God speaking. God said, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. Luke 10, 18, again, Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. See how these things fit together? The Bible wasn't meant to be some mystery that we wouldn't understand. It was meant to be misunderstood or not able to be understood unless you had the life of God on the inside of you where you could understand the Bible. 
where the Bible speaks of mysteries, it doesn't mean God's trying to keep people from knowing things. It means he's trying to keep the information just to those that are in his family. You know how every family has secrets? I've got an uncle I don't want you to know about. But everybody in my family knows about him. Do you understand what I mean? God has family secrets. They're revealed to us in the Bible. I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now the midst of the stones of fire seem to have something to do with hell. Because it tells us that's going to be his end. So apparently there was a time where hell did not affect Satan, but no longer. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy reason, thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities. Now this is an interesting term because it indicates to us or implies, I don't, I don't want to say it too strongly, but it implies since it uses the word sanctuary and the same word sanctuary that the Bible uses for meaning the house of God where, where people worship God. It indicates or implies to us that Satan's voice had something to do with leading the, the, whoever's there, leading worship of God. But he perverted that. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Again, this is another word for merchandise or commerce. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to the ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And all they that know thee among the people, among the people, among the people, among the people. All they that know thee among the people. That means people are supposed to know about this. Hello. You are the blankest look I've ever seen on you. People are supposed to know about this. How many do? It doesn't seem to me to be too many in the church. But it's right here. Folks, it's not that I'm so smart. I just learned to read. It's right here, isn't it? I mean, have I added anything to anything that's been said here? And all they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Folks, I want you to understand it tells you how the devil operates and what his end will be. He operates by trying to terrify you. But he won't always. And the people that know him shall be astonished at him. The reason we'll be astonished is we'll be able to say, and other scriptures say this, are you the guy that caused so much trouble on the earth? You've got to be kidding. Now, there are five things that God said he will do to Satan. God's five I wills. Let me go through them again. Verse 16, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. Second one, I will destroy thee, O covering cherub. Verse 17, I will cast thee to the ground. Number four is I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Verse 18, I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. Now, why does God say that he's going to do five things to Satan? Because 
If you'll turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 14, there were, this is God's response to the five things that Satan said, or Lucifer said, that he would do. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Now, Isaiah's got to be talking by the inspiration of God. How does he know anything about this stuff? He's not going to know anything unless God revealed it to him. And notice here's what God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He said, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Now, son of the morning indicates that there's something special about him. Again, Luke 10, 18. Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Isaiah said it before Jesus ever told us about it. How art thou fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Now, folks, this is talking past tense. He was cut down after he weakened the nations. He's not talking about he, what he was cut down in what he's doing now. It's saying that he did something to some civilization, some, well, I don't know, what other word do you use? some condition, some period of time on the earth, he worked against them and was cut down. Could that be the civilization or whatever Genesis 1-1 means where it says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth before it became without form and void? Well, we have to conclude that it's possible, don't we? I mean, there's nothing to say that it's impossible. We certainly can't say that it's something that happens after the church age because that's not what the Bible tells us the end of the church age will be. So if we know it's not after the church age, following the church age, it tells us there's a seven years of tribulation. Then it tells us of the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Then it tells us of a new heaven and a new earth. There's no desolation from this point forward. So if there's no desolation from this point forward, we've got to look back to before Adam and Eve were on the earth. What other option is there? Unless there's two earths. And that'd be pretty far-fetched. I'm really not into the parallel dimension stuff. I mean, it makes great movies, but... How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said... Now, here are the five things that Satan said. For, I, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. That means he was below heaven. Well, what does the Bible tell us is below heaven? Earth. So he must have been here. Second thing he said is, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. What does that mean? That means he had a throne and they were below the stars of God. So where would his throne be? On earth. Third thing he says is, I will, I will sit also upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north, which means he wasn't sitting there. That's a, a, a reference to the place where God dwells. So he wasn't in heaven. Verse 14, here's his fourth I will. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, which means he was below the clouds. All these things point to him being on the earth, folks. The fifth thing he said is, I will be like the Most High, which means he wasn't. Even though that he was perfect, 
He was the fullness of wisdom. He was perfect in beauty. He was covered with all those, decked out with all those precious stones and stuff. He was the anointed cherub that covers his workmanship, the tabrets of his pipes. His voice was such that apparently he led the worship of God. Some people go so far as to say he was the worship leader. I don't know if that's what that means or not. But somehow he was in charge just like the king would be in charge of bringing the people before God. So Satan said, his fifth I will is I will be like the most high. Isn't it interesting that that's what he tempted Eve with? All of these things have something to do with the same attitude that he tried to bring before Eve. Oh, God didn't, you know, God knows if you eat of that tree. I cannot imagine why why she went for that. Is she not smart enough? Well, I don't want to say it that way. She was deceived. But isn't it a simple thing to think through? Wait a minute. God made the tree. If he knew the tree would make us like him, why would he put it here? If that's what he's trying to do is keep us from being like him, why why wouldn't he just not make it? That's the same logic that I hear people describing with Paul's thorn in the flesh. God gave him the revelation and then gave him some kind of sickness, they say, to keep him from being exalted by the revelations. Folks, if he wanted to keep him from being exalted, just quit revealing stuff to him. That's the same logic for me. I don't understand why people go for that. But it's the same attitude he had. I will be like the Most High God. Verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and that did shake kingdoms? Now that could mean, if we stopped right there, that could mean what he's doing today. But, notice it goes further, that made the world a wilderness. Now, this is a reference to the without form and void stuff. That made the world a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof. Notice how many times the Bible says he destroyed cities. It's not talking about the effect on civilization he's having today. It's talking about something he did to a prior civilization. That's the only possible explanation in my mind. that destroyed the cities thereof, and that opened not the house of his prisoners, which means that whatever the civilization was, he had people under his control, and he dominated them. Okay, back to Genesis. We know, therefore, that when God creates man, I need to quit here. Let me give you just, uh, i tell you what, um, turn, instead of going back to Genesis, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We'll just cut it off here and pick up here next time. So what do we see? We see that God now, after these things have happened, and please understand, the Bible says that there are uh, an innumerable company of angels. So whatever there was here on the earth, we know there are also angels. We know that the Bible tells us that Satan took a third of the angels and rebelled against God. Now, um, boy, I I don't even know if I need to say this. Yeah, I need to say this, but I need to go over it real quickly. So if you have any questions about this, hang on to them. We'll try to answer them next week. We know that Satan took a third of the angels with him, and the Bible tells us that those third of the angels that went with Satan to rebel against God, that they are reserved in chains unto everlasting darkness. 
In other words, those one-third of the angels that rebelled against God are not now operating against mankind in the earth. The Bible says that they are in prison, literal prisons. Then let me ask you this. Who are the demon spirits? If the angels that rebelled against God, see, it's so easy to say, well, the, the demon spirits and the ones that Jesus cast out, those are the ones that rebelled against God. Not so. The Bible says they're reserved under darkness, under, and in darkness under everlasting destruction. So whoever the demon spirits are, they can't be the angels that rebelled against God or with Satan. They can't be the third of the angels. Well, then who are the demon spirits? Folks, I don't have a definitive answer. I can't say, well, the scripture says this, that, and the other. But I can tell you some characteristics that can give you a few clues. What do demon spirits do? Jesus said evil spirits try to embody human beings. Why would evil spirits want to embody humans? Unless these are spirit beings that once had some physical expression through earthly bodies in a civilization that is long past. Could these be the prisoners that he opens not the doors to? Could these be the ones that are now trying to seek expression and can only find expression through occupying or influencing flesh? It's possible. It's certainly possible, isn't it? Furthermore, you remember when Jesus came to certain people that were possessed with the devil, one, uh, in one case they said, one of them cried out and said, Jesus, thou son of God, art thou come to torment us before the time? Before the time. Before the time. There's a time. The devil knows his time is running short. Evil spirits know their time is running out. But they know that there's a time, a specific time. Well, what are they doing prior to that time? What they're doing prior to that time is they're trying to influence mankind because they've been tainted with the same evil as the one they follow, as the one who dominated them then and now, and that's Satan. So we've got this situation. We've got the earth without form and void. We've got God finally recreating the earth. I, I use the term on purpose, recreating the earth, because you created it in Genesis 1.1. Now he's recreating it to make a habitation for man. And in chapter 1, verse 20, uh, 26, it says, Let us make man in our own image, and let them, mankind, have dominion over the earth. This was not done in some corner that nobody knew about, folks. This was done for all of eternity to see. Satan saw it. The evil spirits saw it. The angels saw it. And the angels spoke about it. Hebrews chapter 2. I didn't get there. Let me turn. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 5. It says, For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come whereof he speaks. Now he's, he, previously to this, he's saying, he's, uh, I believe it was Paul, but whoever is inspired by the Holy Ghost, to tell about God's plan for man. And he's saying, we're going to judge the angels. Now, folks, if it makes sense. You don't judge up. We can't be below the angels if we're going to judge the angels. Makes sense, doesn't it? 
God will judge man according to righteousness or the blood of Jesus because he's over man. Man won't judge God because we can't judge up. And the Bible says we'll judge angels, which means they have to be below us. And that's the point that the writer is making here. Here's what the Holy Ghost is telling us. For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. I want you to understand one of the things that has to do with our authority and our place is God's plan for us to rule over angels. Now, if we're going to rule over angels then, that means we have authority over angels now. Nowhere does the Bible say that once we get to heaven, then we get authority over angels. No, it says we've been made above the angels as it is. The Bible says, King James says, we were made lower than the angels. In Hebrew, in um, Psalm 8, it says that we were made lower than the angels, but the word that's translated angels there is the word Elohim, which means God himself. It means the Trinity, the three in one. Now keep that in mind because of what the angels are going to say. They're going to see creation and tell us about it. It says, for under, which, under the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak, but one angel in a certain place te uh, testified, this certain place is Psalm 8, he testified saying, here's the angel speaking at creation saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Now folks, please stop for a second and, and, and think this through with me. That means whatever was here on the earth prior to Genesis 1-2. That means whatever cities that Satan destroyed, whatever fierce anger of God that, that caused the earth to be desolate, that caused it to be without form and void, whatever that situation was, whatever those inhabitants were, whatever the demon spirits might be a result of, wasn't man. Angels are spirit beings, but they're not man. Demons are spirit beings, but they're not man. Don't get the idea that just because something is a spirit being, it has to be in the same class as man. It does not. I think in a lot of cases, in a lot of situations, we fail to recognize the truth of the word that's being revealed to us because we have certain things set in our minds and fixed in our thinking. Just because it's a spirit being doesn't mean it has to be man or it doesn't have to be in the class of man. So the angels who are spirit beings say, what is man that you're mindful of him? Mindful of him means that you would give him such a position. Verse 7, thou madest him a little lower than the angels. This is a, a quote from Psalm 8, verse 2, I think it is, where it says, thou madest him a little lower than Elohim. You made him a little lower than God. Now, if the angels were above man when man was created, why would they be saying, well, what does this man think? They'd be saying, oh, you're going to do this thing again. You're going to make some other spirit beings just like you had on the earth before, but they're going to be below us, so what's the big deal? But that's not their position. They're astonished, saying, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you would make him a little lower than yourself? You're making him above us. What's up with that, God? Now, remember, they've witnessed what has happened before. They've witnessed what's happened when God gave authority over the earth to Lucifer. That didn't work out real well. Now they're saying, you're going to give authority to man? You made him a little lower than yourself. You crowned him with, you may think we've missed our, our subject, gotten off track of our subject. We've been talking about the glory of God. Please understand, this is God's plan for man. 
you crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. Folks, I want you to understand God's original plan for man was the glory of God on you. We've talked about the glory cloud. We've talked about the presence of God. We've talked about the miraculous things that happened as a result. But God's original plan for man was for his glory to be on and in you. He expected each one of us to be little shining clouds walking through the earth. Thou madest him a little lower than yourself. Literally what it means from the Hebrew. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. In other words, he's saying there's still more to come to our place of authority and that position that we'll have and that time, that, that event that will cause that to take place is the rapture. That's when the last thing, which is death, the final enemy, will once and for all be put underfoot. Now, we know what happened. God created man. He gave him authority. He put his glory and he crowned him with glory and honor. He crowned him with glory and honor. Please keep in mind, the Bible tells us that the glory of God appeared in the Old Testament. Under the Old Covenant, it appeared as a cloud. I believe that that cloud, that brightness of God, encircled Adam and Eve when he made them. I believe they were clothed with his glory. Remember Moses coming down from the mountain? His face was shining. People couldn't look at him. They wanted him to put a bag on his head. He's the only one that didn't know he was shining. Everybody else knew, and everybody's looking away saying, Wow, Moses, that's some sunburn you got there. First of all, we're surprised you ever came down from the mountain because of the lightnings and the thunders and all the things that were taking place up there. We didn't think anybody would be able to survive that. And now you come down and you're shining so much that we can't even look at you. So Moses put a veil over his head. I think he missed it. I think he should have forgotten the veil. Now, I understand there's a spiritual application and so forth, but what in the world are you doing something for their comfort for? Let me just say, if I ever start shining like that, forget the veil. <laughs> now, why did Moses shine like that? Because he's seen the glory of God. The glory of God impacted even sinful flesh. Folks, that's what Adam and Eve lost when they sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned, by the way, let me, let, me, let me talk a little bit more about man. What is man that you're mindful of him? It's the only creature, it's the only thing that God crea ever created that he came down to. Everything else talks about going up to God. Man is the only thing that God ever created that he came down to. The Bible says he came down to talk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, at the, in, the, in the garden in the cool of the day. He came down to man. He didn't say to Adam and Eve, now you're welcome to come to me anytime you want. He came to man. He's presenting himself to man because of the relationship that he's creating in this new being. And the angels are saying, what? You're going to do what? You don't come to us. We come to you and do whatever you say. Now God creates this and God reveals his plan as to be in this loving relationship so that he comes down as a father would to a, as a child or a son. And then Adam and Eve fall. Eve is deceived. Adam falls with her. And immediately they know something changes. I believe that's when the light of God's glory went out. Now what does God do? God comes looking for them and they hid themselves. Maybe the saddest verses in the scripture. 
They heard the voice of God and they hid themselves. Now, if you were a parent, I'm going I'm to speak to your, those of you that are parents, remember when your kids were young particularly. Those of you that have young kids, you'll be able to relate to this. When your kids are small and they fall, what's your first reaction? You go to them. You want to pick them up. You want to comfort them. If God does that to man in his fallen state, he consumes him. The Bible says God is a consuming fire. The power of God is just as destructive to sin as it is saving for the sinner. If God goes to hug his son and his daughter, they were destroyed. You remember what Romans uh, 3.23 says? For all have sinned and come short of what? The glory of God. What happened when they fell? They lost their glory. Satan must have thought he won. Satan must have thought once and for all, I've got it. Now not only do I have their authority, have I taken their authority through deception on the earth, but now I've robbed God of the one that he wanted. And God can't even go to his children. He finds a way to make a place for them. He provides them animal skins. I have no doubt that that's the first sacrifice that is made, the first offer of blood sacrifice for their sin. That must be where they learned how to make sacrifice because you can't find it in any other place where God said, okay, here's how you do it. But God can't go to it. You still in Hebrews chapter 2? But here was God's plan. Verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. In other words, he took man's place. He left his position as the God, in the Godhead to be a little bit below the angels, meaning Elohim, just like man was, to be a little bit lower than the Godhead for the suffering of death. In other words, he, took, he left his position in the Godhead and took man's position on the earth for the suffering of death, for this purpose, for the suffering of death. Now, what did Jesus have when he came to the earth as a man? Not as God, but as a man. He was crowned with glory and honor. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things. For whom the whole earth was created to begin with. And by whom are all things, the earth was created by him as well. He's the one that carried out the revealing of God's plan with the work of the Holy Spirit, in bringing, what's his purpose for all that? In bringing many sons unto, what's the next word? To bring many sons unto glory. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Folks, here's what I want to leave you with this morning, and I want to expand on this in the weeks to come. You need to understand that just as we want to magnify and just as we want to recognize and keep our mind open to the presence of God coming in upon us as a group and in a congregation and so forth, the cloud of glory and and God being able to do and the Holy Spirit being able to, to free to move in any way he wants to move, you need to realize you were saved unto glory. The whole purpose for Jesus' coming was to restore glory and honor to man. Jesus didn't come to get it for himself. He came to bring it for you. Now, next week, I want to show you what the whole mystery of salvation, the mystery of godliness is all about. And it was because God originally ordained man unto 
glory. We want to look at what the glory of God did on Jesus in his earthly ministry. Because if we know that we're crowned with glory and honor, just like Jesus was crowned with glory and honor, that means what he did to show us the glory should be what we do in our lives. You need to realize that even though you can't see it with your natural eyes, you are a shining bright cloud walking around. And just because you may not be aware of the brightness of the glory of God that's upon you, other people might be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the revelation of your wonderful plan for mankind. Father, what a privilege it is to realize that we've been saved unto glory. Oh, Father, open our eyes to what that really means. Cause us never more, never again, to look at ourselves as just being saved. Cause us to realize the audacity of the enemy to question our righteousness. When we've been ordained unto glory. Cause us to realize father. The impossibility. Of your words failing to come to pass. When we speak them from our hearts. Because we've been ordained unto glory. Cause us to see like we've never seen before Lord. That our salvation is. Unto the glory of God being manifest in the earth. Father, we love you so much. We thank you so much for what you've done. 